Um, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to uh, be reading uh, in Genesis today. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. Um, hopefully you won't need help finding that, but if you do, it's page 4. And we're going to be reading from verses 5 uh, down to the end of the chapter, verse 25. This is Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 to 25. This is God's word. And no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds down through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and oxen are also there. The name of the second river is the Gain. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Amen. May God bless this reading today. Monty. The uh, comedian Michael McIntyre has a great couple of minutes, I don't know if you've seen it, about our addiction to mobile phones. Uh, he asks a question that is asked by uh, a lot of my generation, and my generation are just as addicted to their phones as, as the younger generation. Uh, and he asked the questions, what on earth did we do before we had these things? 
He says, well, I remember, he says, we used to get out and we used to go into the car without panicking the way we would if we had forgotten our phone. We didn't get into the car and we would suddenly think, oh, what do I need? I need to go back into the house and collect all my ordnance survey maps and atlases in case I want to look up some part of the world. Um, I don't need to collect every photograph I have every ta I've ever taken. I don't need to open the boots so that I can put in my entire set of Encyclopedia Britannica in case I want to look something up. Uh, I don't need my board games in case I get bored, my compass, my torch. I don't need to take out the back seat so I can put in my entire CD collection. It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's a sign, I think, of just how amazing our smartphones are, that we have all this functionality. I was talking about this during the week to someone as I thought ahead to this morning, and I mentioned how surprised I was at how many apps I had open at one time. You know when you go to close it to save the memory or whatever? And I realized that that day I had something like 19 apps open. And so I did it again yesterday, um, knowing that I'd done it within the last 24 hours, and I actually had 25 apps open. I then went in to get my screen fixed. We had a, a little adventure while I was away on my last trip. Uh, and I had to go off for half an hour and have a coffee while they were fixing my screen. And I thought, great, I'll get to go through some of the things on my to-do list. Now, I hadn't quite thought this through. My list consisted of writing a quick email, looking up a couple of references for today's sermon, consulting a map for my next cycle ride, checking in for my flights tomorrow, seeing what the weather is like there so it would help me with my packing, reviewing my Wonderlist app before going away. So I get down to the coffee shop, I sit down, and I suddenly realize that not only can I do none of those things, but the actual to-do list is on the phone as well, which is back at the shop. Christoph asked at the start of the series whether we thought technology was a good thing or a bad thing. And I think that that is actually an example of the good side. All this information, all this functionality at the touch of a screen. We can redeem the time. We can get more done if we don't get distracted by social media. But what is the downside well, the title for today is 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. But don't worry, it's not a 12-point sermon. The title is from a book by Tony Ranka, and each of the chapters in that book is definitely worth a careful read. I recommend it to you. But in the minutes we have this morning, I have summarized the main issues at stake in this phrase, holding on to your humanity, holding on to your humanity. Because I would argue a thoughtless use of this technology, allowing it to become our master rather than our servant, undermines our very humanity. How? Well, in today's culture, we use the word human quite ambivalently, I think. On the one hand, human is something precious, honorable, intrinsic to who we are. So we, we talk of human rights, humanism, humanitarian aid, but on the other hand, we can associate it with weakness and frailty. If we talk about giving in to temptation or failure, we say, oh, well, sure, I'm only human. 
Or if a documentary shows up someone's feelings, we say it demonstrated her humanity. Now, of course, this is totally in line with the Bible's teaching, what we call the Bible's anthropology. Uh, Our humanity is both something precious and God-given to be guarded. It is also broken and messed up. So what is it about our humanity as made in the image of God that needs to be celebrated and guarded and protected? And what is it that needs to be redeemed? And how can technology help or hinder that? Working that out is a fundamental task of discipleship. I think it was John Stott, although he may have got it from an earlier writer, who who I first heard summarizing what it meant to be human in this way. Being made in the image of God, being set apart from the rest of creation, can be seen in five aspects of what it means to be human. And they're taken from Genesis 1 to 3. They are the intellectual, we are able to think. They are the social, we are able to love. There's the aesthetic, we are able to create and admire beauty. There is the moral, we are able to choose. And there is the spiritual, we are able to pray and to be in a relationship with God. You see them coming up. Five important areas of our humanity. Now, of course, other aspects of creation in the animal kingdom can display some varying degrees of some of those, social awareness, uh, intellect, but there is no doubt that at our best, human achievements go much, much further. We are the apex of creation. It's interesting, for example, that when there is an ecological summit to save the planet, it's not the whales or the pandas who meet together, it is the humans. There's a video on YouTube of an elephant painting. Don't ask me how I saw that. Um, It is quite something, but it's limited. I mean, he's not painting a Van Gogh, you know. It's quite limited, but it's precisely there on YouTube because it is so incredible. I mean, there's no clips of me painting on YouTube. It's there because elephants don't paint. So when it comes to our humanity, the ways in which we reflect our Creator God They're seen supremely in these areas. We're intellectual beings. We think. We can investigate the mysteries of the universe because God is the supreme mind. He communicates to us. When we speak truth to one another, we reflect God. We see a little of this in Genesis 2, 19 to 20 with the naming of the animals, the categorization, this sort of ancient taxonomy sign of authority and stewardship, but also an example of using our minds to understand and explore the created order. We're social beings. We're able to form relationships. We're able to display love, sacrificial love towards each other because God is a God of love. And in Trinity, He is a God of relationships within Himself. Genesis 2 concludes the same way as Genesis 1 with the recognition that it's not good for man to be alone And so a suitable companion, a soulmate, is found for him. And our social natures are affirmed. We are aesthetic beings able to create and appreciate beauty. This reflects the creative nature of God, whose whole creative acts are seen in Genesis 1 and 2. Also his concern for beauty in verse 9. The garden was pleasing to the eye and good for fruit. In the early chapters of Genesis, 
There are accounts of humanity settling the earth and excelling in music and metalwork and urban planning and all sorts of creative activity. And then we're moral beings, able to choose between right and wrong, reflecting the moral character of God. In verses 16 to 17, humanity is given a choice. Eat from this tree or don't. Our humanity is only affirmed where there is the choice or the possibility of us doing something different, even if that choice brings harm on ourselves and others. And finally, the spiritual dimension, able to pray and commune with God. It's the image of man and woman in relationship with God, naked and unashamed, God walking with them, an image of complete at-oneness, unlike any other part of creation. Five aspects of our humanity to be celebrated and to be protected. But how does technology fit in with all of that? Well, as I skimmed through Reinke's book, I recognized ways in which the potential pitfalls of smartphone addiction that Reinke highlights in the book, they actually attack these fundamental areas of our identity as made in the image of God as rational, social, creative, moral, spiritual beings. It's about much more than accessing inappropriate content or wasting time or screen addiction leading to sleeplessness, although all those things are important. Take our our ability, first of all, to think and to reason. All students know the value and rules of good research, the benefits of a, a good debate, the challenge of thinking through difficult and complex issues. There's a danger in the way that smartphone technology can bypass or try to shortcut that process. The reason why whole books are written about many of the key social and ethical issues in our day is because their complexity means they can't be treated adequately in a three-minute read from BuzzFeed. Yet the reason fake news can get so much mileage is that the authors know that most of us can't be bothered to check. We'll share a headline on social media without checking the source or even without reading more than the first paragraph. It's said that truth is the first casualty of war. It's possibly also the first casualty of the internet age. So are our reasoning and thinking selves best served by a constant diet of news snippets and social media arguments. I saw this graphic recently. Number of people who change their minds due to Facebook debates. Zero. (laughs) We were given minds to use. But Reinke's point is that we are losing our literacy. His chapter contains fascinating findings from experiments between digital reading and analog reading in books. And which is better for understanding and retention? In summary, the problem, he says, is not the medium in itself. Let's face it, the digital age has made whole libraries of older texts much more accessible And Kindle has revolutionized our holiday and travel reading, hasn't it? The problem Reinke and others discovered is that with digital print, we are trained to skim read 
and not linger over the text. One author lamented this. He said, Once I was a scuba diver in a sea of words. Now I zip along the surface as if on a jet ski. Research continues over the effect that continual exposure to digital media has on how our brains function. We should at least be aware of that. Let me finish that section with a quote from Renke. He says, We need the life-giving gust of the Spirit in the ancient book. God's Word demands our highest levels of literary concentration because it requires relational reading, not the superficial chit-chat of the cocktail party, but the covenantal concentration of marriage vows. God's Word is an invitation to orient our affections and desires. Truth is at stake here, and we cannot allow our minds to become lazy in the very Christian task of discipleship, which is about discerning truth, proclaiming truth, and living truth. Then there is the social capacity. And this, I think, is where we can see some of the deficits quite clearly. Yes, it is possible to develop some community and friendships online, just as it's possible to discern truth online among all the other stuff that's dumped on our laptop screens. It just takes a lot more work. And we cannot let virtual friendships replace real long-term ones. Renke calls this ignoring our flesh and blood. In Christ, we are called to deep and meaningful relationships, especially within the body of Christ. Maybe the problem is that our church relationships have suffered from superficiality for so long that we don't notice any substantive difference between relationships we have here and the ones we develop online. Being involved in an international ministry, a lot of my communication is done via email, text, messenger, <coughs> Zoom, Skype, and I have learned just in one year that nothing beats face-to-face -face mentoring, flesh and blood conversations across a table, hence the traveling. But it's true. How many of us have found ourselves in the midst of a misunderstanding because an email didn't convey our tone of voice or the jokiness that we perhaps intended? It's also got implications for how we speak or communicate online, and I'll, I'll say more about that in a minute. <laughs> we were created to love, and we were made for face-to-face -face relationships. There's a physicality to our humanity. Our whole faith is based on the Word becoming flesh. Our hope is to be delivered from this failing body and given a resurrected body. In anticipation of that, God gives us physical reminders of grace the water of baptism, bread and wine, the church. We were not created for a virtual existence. And if we increasingly retreat into that, we become dehumanized. If I had time, I would have played the whole song from Moby, released in 2016, called Are You Lost in the World Like Me? This is a screenshot from the official video. I encourage you to look it up. Moby, are you lost in the world like me? Unrestricted smartphone addiction can lead to exclusion, marginalization, and self-absorption. So what about the aesthetic? Gerard Manley Hopkins famously wrote, 
the world is charged with the grandeur of God. A couple of the lines of the poem say this, And for all this nature is never spent, there lives the dearest freshness deep down things. We live in an amazing world. But it takes time and work to see the beauty underneath the brokenness sometimes. It's the same theme, isn't it? Just as God calls us to stretch our minds at a time when the culture encourages superficiality of thinking when it comes to truth. Just as he calls us to love when the temptation is to be satisfied with superficiality in relationships, so too he calls us to reflect his beauty and creativity when the culture has reduced the focus of our attentions to a six by three inch piece of plastic. God has given us a world to explore and appreciate, and we have blinkers on. We're looking at pixels instead of the stars. Our eyes should be drawn up, not drawn down. Our whole universe is in danger of being effectively reduced. Lock me in a dark cell so long as I have this, I'll be okay. This photograph went viral a couple of years ago. Don't know if you can see it. The painting in the background is one of the most famous of Rembrandt's masterpieces. It's the Night Watch hanging in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. The painting is famous for its size, it's massive, its use of shadow, its sense of motion, the sheer number of characters captured by Rembrandt. People have spoken of standing in front of it for an hour and seeing something new each time. People from around the world fly in to see it. And in the foreground, a dozen high school kids in front of this amazing painting, all looking at their smartphones. Now, I am aware that various explanations have been given as to why they were on their phones. But I'm sorry. Even the claim that they were on the museum website researching a class project doesn't wash with me. Do your research at home. Look up the website at school before you come. When you're in the presence of greatness, you take the opportunity to look at the real thing. Your eyes should be drawn up, not down. Yes, technology can help us appreciate the world and its beauty more, but don't be satisfied with the replica over the real thing. Gwen has a couple of apps that help us to identify plants and birds and bird songs so we can appreciate the real things and know where they fit into this amazing world. Just because we can study them in the comfort of our living room doesn't mean we don't go have to go out anymore and see the real thing. Now, I got into trouble last time when I was preaching about ruining a children's song. Well, this week, Stephen, we nailed it. Amazing, wonderful first song, wasn't it? Stripes on a bee, stars into space, singing and dancing, reflecting God's incredible imagination. That's what it's about. Don't let your mind get smaller. Don't let your relationships become diminished, and don't let your universe become reduced. And fourthly, our moral nature. The good news is we can choose how we use these things. 
We can choose between right and wrong, but also between the helpful and the unhelpful, the wise and the unwise. Smartphone addiction runs the risk of further dehumanization if we allow our moral capacity to become dulled, if we allow our consciences to become silenced. We know we shouldn't be spending as much time on the devices, but we silence that voice. And of course, what we use the internet for raises many moral questions. If you think of the old picture of the three monkeys, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, you can apply them here. We know too well how easy it is to see the wrong stuff. But what we choose to listen to and believe is also important. Behind every piece of writing, there is a worldview, many of which are against the worldview of Scripture. It's always been the case. It's just become a lot easier to hear it. And what about speaking no evil? What do we make of the vast number of internet trolls, those who populate online forums and social media specifically to insult and demean and bully others while hiding behind an anonymous pseudonym? It's shocking. And cyberbullying and online insults have rightly been designated a hate crime. It doesn't matter if you write it, tweet it, or post it. Slander is still slander. If you're tempted to make a smart-ass response or put-down or engage in gossip or lazy stereotyping of another person online, just ask, would I say this out loud? Would I say it in front of them? Or if someone once advised, would you say it in front of your mother? Slander is still a sin, whether you're anonymous or not. And the final aspect of our humanity that marks us out, God's special creation, is our capacity to know Him the spiritual. What's at stake here? Well, there are prayer apps, very useful. I actually remember sitting in a pew over there during a service a number of years ago. I think it was when Richard Wallace was with us speaking about prayer and thinking, you know, well, I've tried so many things and it's still so difficult. And I actually downloaded a prayer app during the service as he was preaching. And I don't, get, don't try to get away with that now. <laughs> you know, consulting the latest uh, share prices or something. I actually downloaded it during the service because I knew if I didn't do it then, I wouldn't do it at all. Last week, I actually, meant, I actually met the guy who created that particular app. Very useful. And Bible apps, great for different versions, great for mobility and portability. Although, Although for reasons I mentioned earlier, I think there's enough evidence about the superiority of the printed word for deep study and to see things in context to warrant not just using your Bible app, but using a printed one as well. Don't throw this away. Don't get rid of it. There's something significantly different about physically taking down and reading something, giving it more undivided attention than just using an app where WhatsApp notifications interrupt you and you're trying to read. Besides, personally, the main difference between using this and using this is that when I use this, I'm less tempted to check the football scores in between verses. But it's, more, it's about more than these tools, useful as they are. It's about how dehumanizing us in these other areas may affect our spiritual relationship with God. 
It's hard to see, for example, how if our minds are being bypassed, our relationships are becoming shallower, our creativity is being stifled, our moral choices are being dulled, how on earth our spirituality can be increased. We are whole people. Each one of these parts is connected to the other. How often have you praised God because of a wonderful piece of art or music or natural beauty? Or praised Him because you were empowered by Him to make a good choice? Or because of a precious relationship that encouraged you? Or a wonderful truth that you grasped for the first time? If we expand in these other areas, we will expand in our spiritual walk with God. And that takes time and concentration. Renke's first chapter is entitled, Addicted to Distraction. Addicted to Distraction. And it's impossible to develop a healthy spiritual life if we can't be still and know that He is God. Be still and think and reflect and pray and read and listen. We know that the whole issue of self-esteem is massive, massive, particularly among young people in the digital age. And the emphasis on the instant and the superficial and projected reality and the hijacking of terms like like and love and friend and follower has made this even more of a problem. I don't know what your online persona is. I don't know what view of yourself you like to project to the world. But whatever it is, let me tell you this. You are better than that. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Your God-given persona is incredibly and amazingly and superlatively better than your online persona. He has called you friend and asks you to follow him, and that's all that matters. So how can we do that in this wonderful but challenging digital age? Let me finish with just some quick applications and how we can hold on to our humanity. Firstly, take time to think. Let's pursue wisdom, not information. There's no evidence that although we have gigabytes more information than the previous generation, and certainly tetrabytes more information than people like the apostles or Solomon, there is no evidence that we are any wiser. We still need to plumb the depths of ancient wisdom. Let us never mistake technological advancement for moral superiority. Wisdom will only come if we take time to set our phones down and reflect on the articles we've read, the news we've been exposed to, the arguments that we've heard online, and ask, how would God have me respond here? Secondly, socially, what would it be like to have a phone-free date with our friends or our parents or children or spouses? I love the idea I saw online of four friends out for a meal, and the four phones were stacked face down on the table, and the agreement was that the first one to touch their phone paid for the meal. Try it. Or better still, leave it at home. Think of what it would be like to have the undivided attention of your friend or partner, or for them to have your undivided attention and how much that would mean to them. Practice being present. Practice being present. Thirdly, enjoy the world we've been given. Drink in each moment of beauty and joy. I'm amazed when the cameraman does a crowd shot at a football match after a goal, and most of the fans are leaping up and down, but there's usually one or two who have just witnessed their team score an amazing goal, who are oblivious to what's going on around them, and they're busy tweeting the score or texting their mate. 
missing the moment. Or being at a gig and someone in front of you is not lost in the music, but has got their camera up taking some dreadful standard photo or illegal video, which will be unwatchable and missing the moment. Or what it would be like to actually enjoy a good meal without photographing it. Guilty as charged. Life is for living, not trying to somehow digitally capture its elusive nature. You remember the story of Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration saying to Jesus, Hey Jesus, this is a great moment. Let's build tents for Elijah and Moses. If that had been today, Peter would have had the selfie stick out. Live life deeply, not vicariously through some second-hand experience. Let's make sure our eyes are drawn up, not down. And morally, remember you have a choice. You can choose how much or how little to use this. Don't be mastered by it. There's so much out there we have to be discerning in what we give our time to, what we see, what we listen to, how we speak. There is no point in being proud that we bit our tongues and didn't snap back at somebody at work if we go home and let fly at somebody else on social media. Just because they're not in the room, just because we don't know them, doesn't mean we're not sinning against them. How we spend our time is a window into where our heart is. Every generation has its idols. And for us, our idol could be as small as this. And lastly, spiritually, we need to remember there are no shortcuts to seeking God. You're probably aware that one of the guys that Christoph and I often quote from up here is Eugene Peterson. One of his most powerful images about discipleship, in fact, it's a title of one of his books, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A Long Obedience. What's its subtitle? Its subtitle is this, Discipleship in an Instant Culture. To be a follower in the cyber era means making the choice sometimes to step out for a while, to step away from the endless chat and ever-changing visuals and away from all the noise and allow our eyes to be drawn upwards, not down. There are no shortcuts to being immersed in God's Word. There's no fast track to prayer. There's no substitute for the spiritual disciplines or means of grace. There's no easier alternative to the week-by-week messiness of church. This journey of discipleship is a long obedience. But like all journeys, it begins with a step, and it can begin now. So by all means, use this God-given tool to reach out to people you wouldn't otherwise be able to contact as easily. Don't use it, though, to cut yourself off from the people around you. By all means, use this God-given tool to save you time, not to kill time. And with the time you save, think, be present, drink in the beauty, choose wisely, and seek God. Let your eyes be drawn upwards, not down.